The hospital is a scary place at night. Without natural sunlight, it looks institutional. Every flickering fluorescent bulb suddenly becomes noticeable, and every bulb that goes out creates a foreboding shadow in the hallway. There are far fewer staff than during the day, so it can feel a little abandoned. Patients, especially dementia patients, often get agitated at night, so at any given time you may hear blood-curdling screaming from the rooms around you. This is really the recipe for a good haunted house. Now imagine being in this scary environment and also being legitimately worried about your health. Imagine getting short of breath or having chest pain and wondering if anyone will be there to help. Enter the Nocturnist, mild-mannered citizen by day, hospitalist by night. sick enough the podcast about patients who are sick enough to be in the hospital and the doctors who are sick enough to work there i'm dave and i'm tyler and we're hospitalists we're internal medicine doctors who specialize in treating patients who need to be hospitalized a quick disclaimer we created this podcast to educate and entertain our listeners the information we share is not medical advice and you should always consult your own doctor also please note that we are doctors for adults and are not trained or qualified to comment on pediatric care all right, Tyler. So I probably over-dramatized our introduction a little bit, but really nocturnists are heroes to me. They do a difficult job that I don't want to do, and their willingness to do it makes my life a little bit easier. Yeah, the introduction, you made it sound like, I think of like a bald vampire with a <laughs> cape and fangs and then wearing a stethoscope around his neck. <laughs> See, and the phlebotomists are the vampires at the hospital. <laughs> They're the ones who are coming in and drawing blood in the middle of the night. So, so let's help our, our listeners out here. Let's define a nocturnist. What is a nocturnist? So nocturnists are hospitalists who work the night shift full time. And other services also have their version of nocturnists. You know, there are OBGYNs who are nocturnists who, you know, work the night shift each night. So there are certainly other versions of nocturnists, but in general, we kind of when we hear that term, we think of, of hospitalists who exclusively work night shifts. Their role at night is a little bit different than our than our role is during the daytime. They're responsible for admitting any patients who come into the hospital during the night. They're also responsible for doing cross cover, meaning they're responsible for responding to any issues that arise in any of our team's patients. When someone needs a Tylenol in the middle of the night, the nurse calls the nocturnist. If somebody's having chest pain in the middle of the night, it's up to the nocturnist to respond and handle the emergency. That means that this one person may be responsible for covering hundreds of patients at any given time. You know, at many hospitals, the nocturnist is responsible for running codes, meaning they have to lead the, the team that resuscitates patients when those patients stop breathing or their heart stops. My inspiration for this topic was actually the fact that you just worked a week of nights, right, Tyler? I did, yes. How did it go? Tell me about your experience. Well, there's, uh, as you've kind of already touched on, there's there's some pros and cons, and I think we're going to talk about it coming mm -hmm. up soon. The biggest difference between working nights and working days is when I show up, when I'm doing days and I show up, I have a to-do list, and that to-do list is my rounding list. Mm -hmm. A nocturnist does not have that. Well, it grows as right, the night it, goes on. It grows, <laughs> and he, the nocturnist will certainly find things to do, but when I clocked in at 6 p.m., there was nothing I had to do. Mm -hmm. Think of the nocturnist as like a fireman. He sits there and he waits for fires to get put out, and if there are no fires, he has nothing to do, but that is pretty there rare. There are always fires. There are always <laughs> fires. Those fires can come in several forms. One form, as you just mentioned, is admissions from the ER. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned the, the whammy coat, the whammy pages that, hey, this patient's crashing. Like the nocturnist yeah. has to put that out. Yeah, hypothetically speaking, though, if there are no fires, um, one advantage to being a nocturnist is, I was actually, before you 
showed up, I was chit-chatting with our sound engineer here, and I said, mm-hmm. we had a very, very mild week. And <laughs> in residency, I carried a reputation as a white flag so mm-hmm. much so that they they forced me to have extra days carrying the pager when I was a resident. <laughs> and I think that reputation may have carried with me to work nights because this past week was very easy. The other nocturnists working with us were just saying, I've never had a week this slow. And so yeah. we did spend a lot of time sitting at our computers I mean, I was reading about March Madness, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so th- that is an advantage to working night shifts is you kind of get paid to sit and watch the clock if there, if, yeah. if no one goes whammy. So It's funny because you know, I know one of our nocturnists, I feel like he is unflappable. Like nothing, you could tell him that the building was on fire and he would be like, okay, just nothing, nothing seems to bother him. He could have like a dozen admissions piled up. And he'll be like, I'll get to him. You know, it's just nothing seems to bother him. He's good at that. And then one of the other nocturnists manages to read. He'll re- he'll go through like an entire novel during a work week. <laughs> I don't know where he finds the time because every time I've been on nights, it's been nonstop start to finish. There might be one or two good nights out of the week. But for me, it's always been nonstop start to finish. And at no point do I ever feel like I've got time to sit down and read. So. Anyway, years ago, you know, we didn't have nocturnists uh, and it was just sort of expected that each of us would take turns rotating through seven straight nights of work. And those weeks were for me, I just thought they were always the worst. The first few days, my sleep schedule wouldn't have really flipped around yet. So I just constantly felt jet lagged. After about two days, my internal clock would start to catch up. So I'd be a little bit less drowsy at work, but it was always hard to sleep during the day because just the rest of the world is awake. People still call you. They still ring your doorbell. Um, It's light out. So, you know, if you're not using blackout curtains or a sleep mask or something, then the light's going to wake you up. And then I also thought it was always sort of cognitively difficult because constantly signing and dating things, but your shift spans two separate days. And at some point you're going to, you know, sign the wrong date, you know, because you still think it was yesterday. Yeah. Last week, I I don't think you'll ever see me write the words today or tomorrow or yesterday yeah. on my notes because I just realized that I was going to inevitably get that wrong at some point. So yeah. I just started using Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. And I just completely, when I work nights, the, the days today, tomorrow, yesterday, those days do not exist. Yeah. And you think about like you're writing things to, you're writing messages to your teammates the next morning right. who are going to be picking up these patients. And if you write something like, we'll need to call GI tomorrow. Well, yeah. Do you mean tomorrow or do you mean today. later on in the morning? Yeah, right. today. And you document the wrong thing and somebody doesn't follow through, then you could be called on that. So after seven days, I always just felt like a zombie, you know, and then, you know, once the work week was over, you'd have that sort of time off in between that and your next work week. But I would use all of that time off just trying to get my schedule flipped back. It was brutal. And I remember there's one year where we all got assigned at least six weeks of nights, but I think it was more like eight weeks because we had some doctors who quit like halfway through the year and we all had to just absorb their weeks. So I remember that that year was particularly painful and I don't think we ever had any sort of like benefit or bonus or, you know, attaboy for working a heroic number of nights that year, but we probably deserved it. You've given a lot of really reason, really good reasons not to work nights here. (laughs) If this is so bad, why does this job exist? Like how are, how are there full-time nocturnists if the job is so terrible? (laughs) It's funny because our leadership actually used to tell us that no one would do this job And that's why it was impossible to hire nocturnists because no one would want to do the job. But there are people out there who do want to do the job. Number one, I think there are incentives to work nights. The doctors will get paid more per shift or they get extra vacation or PTO uh, or both. It usually pays more. Yeah. 
when I, I noticed working at smaller hospitals, it was a bigger difference than at this yeah. big hospital. At, at, at the big hospital I currently work at, the difference is kind of minimal. I don't really think it is much mm-hmm. of an incentive. But my prior job at a smaller hospital, it was a big, it's like a 15% pay raise. And it's that's funny thing is that some of the smaller hospitals, being a nocturnist is actually kind of a cushy job. Yeah. Because, not, you know, not too many fires not, to put out. Yeah, not too many fires to put out. And you basically get paid to kind of sit around and read or, you know, look look things up on the internet. Yeah. And only occasionally jump into action. At our hospital, it's it's a lot more constant sort of work. But you're right. I think the pay differential is not as good. So, Also, some people are just night owls. Yeah, I think that's true for a couple of our nocturnists. Yeah, so. I mean, I've, if some people, you know, they go through med school and they go through residency and they realize, you know, in their 30s that, you know, I kind of just would rather be up all night instead of all day. Well, mm-hmm. there you go. Nocturnist is the job for you. I think some of them like it because it gives them less contact with leadership. Yeah. Which is sort of along the same lines. I also think it could be a foot in the door for some people. You know, if you want... If there's a place you want to move to or a practice you want to join, and that's the only job they have open, it's a way to join that practice, and then you can sort of pivot into a daytime role when that comes up. I know we've had a couple doctors who've done that. So Yeah. I know a lot of people, too, depending on their spouse's work shift or their Mm -hmm. family situation, it can kind of benefit them. I know Mm -hmm. one of the nocturnists who I've just worked with this past week, he said he prefers working nights because it allows him to spend more time with his kids. He gets dinner with his kids every night. And then he goes to work after dinner with his kids who Mm -hmm. are in high school. And that's pretty cool, I thought. Yeah. And for a lot of the nocturnists, they'll come home. They'll sleep while the kids are in school. Right. And then they'll be awake for when the kids get home. And they'll actually get to spend some time with them each day. Yeah. So, Tyler, are there any upsides to working at night? Well, kind of what I just said, if it's a slow night, you know, you're basically getting paid to sit around, Mm -hmm. fry around on ESPN.com. So, I mean, that can be be pretty beneficial. And we've talked about some of the other advantages, too. Yeah. Go yeah, back. that's really about it. So, I mean, I think we've covered all the advantages. I mean, there are, I certainly don't prefer working nights and mm-hmm. I'm in, at no point considering on becoming a full-time nocturnist, mm-hmm. but there are enough advantages about it. The rigmarole of rounding and discharging, mm-hmm. it gets exhausting. And, you know, when I discharge a patient, about half of them need some sort of case management thing. And then I have mm-hmm. to go harass the case managers and find out if they had that set up. And then as you'll see in a future episode, about half my patients don't even want to leave the hospital. And mm-hmm. so then I have to talk them into leaving the hospital. As a nocturnist, you don't have to mess with that rigmarole. You don't have yeah. to call the case managers. You don't have to co- convince people to go. It is really nice to just sit there and put out fires for seven days and, and you didn't have anything you had to do. Mm-hmm. I almost felt like I had the week off this past week. Mm-hmm. It, it's ironic that I actually had a slightly more profitable week than usual <laughs> when in fact it was significantly less work. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think you get the first crack at a patient. You know, we see patients in the hospital on a day-to-day basis. Usually somebody else, you know, an ER doctor has seen them, someone's admitted them, and someone else may have managed them for a few days before we get them. But when you're the nocturnist, you're taking kind of the first crack at every single patient and figuring out kind of what's wrong with them. Yeah. So I think academically it can be kind of, I don't want to say fun, but academically it can be a little bit rewarding getting to sort of take the first crack at a patient and figure out what's wrong with them. I think it's nice when you encounter a very difficult or complex patient, knowing that you don't have to see them day after day after day. And that that one, you have to fix kind of what's wrong with them in that moment and get them into the next day. And then some other, someone else will be kind of taken over. And there were some patients I admitted last week. Mm -hmm. I was like, whew, I feel bad for whoever gets this one. (laughs) And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, unpleasant patients it just may mean that they're complex there are a lot of things that can mean yes yeah. <laughs> yes so 
I know I remember as a resident, I actually loved working nights because I felt like I had lots of autonomy. And I was the one who was in charge of the, you know, as the senior resident, you're in charge of the interns. And so you're kind of running the show at nighttime where I did residency. We were pretty much one of the only people there at night. So it was, it was very kind of confidence building to be. Put, put some hair in your chest. Yeah, exactly. We felt like we had autonomy and, and I think that was a big part of it. So I also think it's a good way to get to know the hospital and you kind of learn about who all the night shift nurses are. You, you learn kind of about how it takes longer for certain things to happen at night, for instance. And it helps you, I think, be a more effective daytime doctor because you can sort of predict what's going to happen at night. And for instance, if, if it's going to take the EKG tech a long time to get to the floor at night, you can sort of plan ahead for that. Or, you know, that, that might be sort of a, something you could take into consideration when you're planning your treatment for that patient during the day. There were a couple other downsides to working nights that you probably wouldn't think about sitting here or on mm-hmm. a podcast until you start to work nights. <laughs> um, I really didn't mind the flip of my sleep schedule, but what I did not like about it is after my shift ended and I would go home and I would sleep all day and I'd wake up, depending on at what point I got off last night, I would wake up between 10 a.m. or 2 p.m., mm-hmm. just depending on the day. But then I had I didn't go back to work until 6 p.m., and I really hated that like four to seven hours of sitting around trying to find something to do until I go into work at 6 mm-hmm. p.m. That's a pretty awful it really makes your, your days kind of feel like they blend in together in a bad way. And you just feel like when you're doing that all day, waiting to kill time to go work, you just feel like you've lost a week of your life. Yeah. And that was probably my least favorite part about working nights. You don't get to see any of your friends either. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. It'd be cool if I call my dad or one of my neighbors over. We might be able to like have a quick dinner together at yeah. 5 o'clock or 4.30. But like, I mean, that's really it. Like, it, was a, it was pretty isolated for that reason. Yeah. And I know we'd mentioned kind of have a hospital yourself, mm-hmm. which is good, but there's a double-edged sword to that too. I'm a social guy. I really enjoy the sound of my own voice. Uh, <laughs> I love to talk. As you can tell, I've got a podcast going. And I don't know, the, the isolation I felt was a little why I'm not going to do this full-time. Mm-hmm. It's cool for a week a year, maybe two weeks a year, mm-hmm. but if I were going to go full-time nocturnus, I'd get real tired of sitting alone in that office. Yeah. Now, granted, there are a couple other, in this enormous hospital I work at now, there's two other nocturnists there with me, but most nocturnists, if you go to smaller hospital, smaller city, you are alone. Yeah. You are completely, and, entirely alone. And I think even our nocturnists like working alone and yeah. like, will just go shut themselves up in a room somewhere. If you are work. a social person who likes to t- talk and enjoys mm-hmm. conversation and making friends with your coworkers, then nocturnist is not the job for you. Yeah. You'll get, you'll get tired of the isolation. The other thing that I think about being a nocturnist is there are going to be times where there's an emergency and you have to call and wake somebody up at home. And those doctors are not always very kind to you. It better be a convincing emergency. Yeah. There have been times I remember calling one GI doctor in particular. I remember calling him and telling him that I had a patient in the hospital who had a life-threatening GI bleed and that I thought he needed to come in and see her that night or at least kind of optimize his day so that she would get scoped pretty early. And his basic response to me was, well, how do you even know she's one of our patients? And I, and I was like, well, she told me she was a patient at your practice. And, you know, Some specialists will try real hard to hang up the phone at 3 a.m. Yeah, exactly. And as it turned out, she wasn't just a patient at this guy's practice. She was his patient. And he had scoped her like within the past year or something. Like she had known problems and he was still hassling me and basically telling me 
that I should not have called him this life-threatening GI bleed problem. And That's classic. I've always sort of joked ever since then that I could have been calling him and telling him his mom was bleeding out and he would have been, he would yep. have said, why are you bothering me? So anyway, you, you might see uh, people's negative sides in the middle of the night because uh, a lot of doctors do not want to be bothered. So the other thing that, I don't know if this is really a downside about nights, but I would say it's still sort of a downside. In my experience, a lot of physician leaders rarely work nights, which seems kind of strange to me. Obviously, they're not desirable shifts, but it's a really good way to get sort of a boots on the ground perspective of your group. Kind of like what you just said there. Yeah. I mean, it sends a great message to your employees when you demonstrate that you can do the same dirty job that you're asking them to do. And I think it also keeps other groups in the hospital honest. That sort of the GI doctor is a good example if the head of our group calls him up in the middle of the night, is he going to give them the same attitude that he gives us? I, yeah. I really doubt it. And I think it would send the message to, to those consultants that somebody's watching, you know, even in the middle of the night when they're not holding up their end of the bargain. So I got to imagine you work enough night shifts, you're going to see some crazy stuff at the fan. <laughs> like, what, do we have any, do you have any stories? I got a couple of stories. I have tons of stories. Yeah. So one night I walked in during a hostage negotiation with an active shooter and I parked on the staff deck, but over at the clinic and visitor parking deck, someone had barricaded themselves into their car with a gun. And as I was, as I was walking in, I overheard police negotiators like on a bullhorn shouting instructions at this person in the car. There were fire trucks parked all around the parking deck and they had all their ladders up. I'm not sure if they were shining light in there or if there were like snipers on some of the ladders. But I think that was like one of the crazier nights walking in. But I sort of remember the time being like, oh, this seems about right, you know. This, this seems about how things go here in the hospital. You mentioned firefighters earlier and how nocturnists <laughs> were kind of like the firefighters of the hospital. One night when I was on, a patient on one of the floors set his bed on fire. Apparently hospital mattresses are just super flammable. And this guy was mentally ill and I think may have had some, like some learning disability sort of problems as well. And he was upset with the staff for, for one reason or another. And sort of like to spite them, he set his bed on, his bed on fire. The staff members, That'll get him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the staff members, this is the crazy part. The staff members came in, dragged him out of there, and then the guy broke free and ran right back into the room. And the staff had to go back into this blazing room and get him. Eventually, the fire got extinguished. Unfortunately, this happened on the top floor of the hospital. So the water that put out the fire went basically just cascaded from floor to floor. Oh my gosh. And just ruined, It had to be the top floor. Yeah, and it just ruined every room below. And those rooms were kind of like off limits for, God, what was it, at least a couple months, I think. So one of the funnier, it wasn't funny at the time, but I think one of the interesting things was that three of the staff members had to be hospitalized because of smoke inhalation. And a few of them were float nurses, which basically for our listeners, that means that they work for the hospital, but they are flexed to where they're needed on any given day. They're a little out of their element sometimes. Yeah. Well, so a couple of the nurses who had to be hospitalized were float nurses and they called in sick that night and their supervisor must not have known about the fire because he basically called them up and threatened to fire them if they didn't show up for work. And I know at least one of these nurses was basically on the phone saying, I'm in the hospital because of a fire that happened last night and you're threatening to fire me because of because I can't show up tonight. I think that's just sort of crazy. Anyway, tell me what, what, tell me one of your stories. I can think of two that happened overnight. One of them wasn't really necessarily an overnight story per se, but it, it happened overnight. So that's mm -hmm. why I always can't stick, stick out with me. I was a, a senior resident on call one night and the ER called me because uh, they had this kid, this like 
21 year old kid with no medical history mm-hmm. he's playing basketball with his friends and passed out and they brought him in and the cat scan showed basically his entire left hemisphere was a tumor oh wow and it was like the radiologist reading it basically said i've never seen anything like this before this is probably too big to be a meningioma but mm-hmm. it, the fact that he's still alive means it's not an astrocytoma and the radiologist said i have no idea what this is I guess we could start with a biopsy, but if we're going to go in there, maybe take it out. But if we take out half his brain, would he still be alive? And I remember to this day, I'll never forget. I walked in, I was still resident and I walked into the, to the kid's room and he was just sitting there fine. I mean, he he yeah. was just, he was sitting there with his, like his brother or there's someone else in the room. My hospital didn't have neurosurgery. So I reminded the <laughs> ER doctor that this, we can't handle this. Mm-hmm. They need to go to a bigger hospital with neurosurgery. And he's like, oh yeah. So as the ER doctor was trying to find a neurosurgery capable hospital to send this mm-hmm. kid to. I was like, this is incredible. I went down and just, I just wanted to see this kid. Yeah. And he was just sitting in bed and I was like, Hey man, they tell you what they found. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I don't know. They said, you know, just get some surgery, get it out of there. And I was just like, this poor kid has no idea what he's about to go through. Yeah. And to this day, I, about once or twice a year, I think about that kid and what happened, what did they do? Yeah. What did they find? And I, it kills me that I, I have no idea and if you're out there, you know, email, email. us. E- e- email we, us. Our email is on the website. <laughs> I, I have not forgotten about you. This was probably 2015, 2016. Yeah. Man, I, I just, uh, that that's one. That wasn't really a night story per se, but the ER doctor called me about midnight. That was why I, I put it in my night's file. Mm-hmm. I can also think of, this one's definitely a night story. I was still a senior resident. I'll call a different night. I was more responsible for the ICU as a resident than mm-hmm. I am now. And the, the ER called me with this ICU admission. There was this, another kid, of course, this guy was 33. He was a guitarist for a local, like kind of semi-popular kind of mm-hmm. trying to make it band. And uh, he was at a show and he was partying a little bit. And after the show, they were drinking and farting around and he just kind of passed out. Lost pulses, CPR. Mm-hmm. paramedics were called i mean he probably just partied too much was a thing mm-hmm. he was probably down for about an hour and a half before he got to the hospital which i know dave you know that means the guy's yeah. he's dead yeah i mean even though he's young if you're partying you code blue you pass out i mean he's dead unless you just had like the best cpr ever but even but then, this was in the field with a bunch of other yeah. kids high on whatever yeah. and so like i i admitted the year i called me i went down to see this kid and, and I, he was tubed and lined and everything and you know all the pressers were going and the vent was going and I just knew he was dead but yeah. you can't say that when he's still in the ER so we admitted him we sent him to the ICU like this haunts me but like by the time we got him to the ICU I guess this kid was really well liked mm-hmm. and I, I went to do something else and then I came back to the ICU to like finish my admission and when I went and saw him in the ICU there were like 30 people in there because mm-hmm. this is before COVID when you can do that yeah and these people were, it was people, young people, there's old people, there's middle-aged people. And like this kid must have been like the, the king of this county or something. Mm-hmm. And all these people in this room were like, well, we'll, we'll get him back. You know, we'll, we'll we'll pump him full of oxygen and then he'll be better again. And and I was thinking, holy crap, like no one in this room realized this kid is going to be dead except yeah. for his mom. And his mom came in there crying, bawling. And this is this was at like 3 a.m., mind yeah. you. And right, and, and yeah. no one's at their best. There, I had no special support. I could have called my attending and woke him up, but honestly, I, I knew this kid was going to be dead, and there was nothing my attending could do anyway. Yeah. 
So this poor mom was the only person in the room who knew that this kid was done. And the mom said, he always told me, if this ever happened, we weren't going to do this. We can't do this anymore. We got to stop all this. And like, I personally took the mom's side, but I, I couldn't drive that mm-hmm. because for one, he just got there. And for two, there was 31 other people in the room that were screaming, including the patient's stepmom was in the room who they hated each other. Oh boy, it got messy. It was real yeah. bad real quick. Oh, that one that one haunts me. I mean, I, I, I wound up getting through the shift and then they terminally extubated him like a week later. But that one, <laughs> I, I still think about that one to this day, too. Yeah. So for our listeners, this kid probably had an, what's called an anoxic brain injury. Yeah. Which is where the brain goes without oxygen for long enough that you like basically are brain dead. Yeah. And even though your heart's beating and we have a machine that's breathing for you. There's no brain activity, and that's not something that people typically recover from. It's incompatible and, with life. Yeah, but it can be really difficult. This, these are the situations you hear about on the news where yeah. someone's been kind of in, in a vegetative state, and somebody thinks that they're in there, but they're not really responding. That's kind of what Tyler's talking about. So so one time when I was in med school on my surgery rotation, me and another med student were kind of in the call room, and the one of the residents came and got us and basically said, we got to go down to the ER. A real train wreck's coming in. And we thought it was an actual train wreck. (laughs) (laughs) There's going to be a hundred people. (laughs) So my med student friend was like really excited. She was like, oh, this is, this is going to be great. We're going to, you know, look at all the stuff we're going to see. How bad was the train wreck? Do you think? And we get down there and found out that a train wreck in medical parlance is really just someone who's just a disaster. It's not complicated. Yeah. Someone who's very complicated and has a lot of problems going on. Well, flash forward about eight years, and I was summoned to the ER for a mass casualty event. And I've had several of these when I've been either on call or or on at nighttime. And we actually had a train wreck here in, in our city. And it was called out. The way these things work is that police or medics call out that there's been an event. And someone in the emergency room sort of makes a determination as to whether or not the number of casualties may may or may not exceed what we can handle. And if it does exceed what we can do or what we presently have room for in the emergency room, they'll call out one of these things as a mass casualty event. And in this case, it actually wasn't all that bad. I don't think anybody was really hurt. We had maybe two or three people. I think somebody drove a car into a train. and But I don't think anybody was really substantially hurt. But train wrecks absolutely do happen. Yeah, And I think that's probably where the term came from. Probably. But, you know, I've also treated people who've been shot by cops and subdued by canine units. And I've seen just some horrific dramas kind of unfolding in the ER. There'd be things that you would see in the ER that would be on the news the next morning. And you'd go home and you couldn't really tell your family about it because you didn't want to break HIPAA. But it's like one of those things where it's like, yeah, I treated that guy that you just yeah. saw on the news this morning, you know. Yeah. So that's just some of the crazy stuff that you see on nights. Well, thanks for listening to Sick Enough. If you enjoyed this episode or if you enjoy hearing doctors tell stories or if you like learning about different medical conditions, then I urge you to hit like or subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. If you have questions or thoughts about today's episode, please email us at sickenoughpodcast at gmail.com. If there's a topic you'd like us to talk about or if you have unrelated questions, email us with those too. As we accumulate questions, we'll start doing a few Q&A sessions. I'd like to thank Michael Cobrin and Pixabay.com for our intro music. And I'd also like to thank our sound engineer, Alex. I'd like to thank Swede Custom Studios and Two Birds Artwork for helping us with a thumbnail on our website. And of course, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in every week.